Our Father, we bow before you again, thankful that we can join our hearts together in prayer, lifting our voices to do, to ask that you meet with us by your Spirit this morning, that your Spirit would guide us into the truth, for we know, Father, all is vain unless he comes and does the work that only he can do of opening eyes and unstopping ears so that we might see and hear your truth and rightly apply it to our life. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given us your very words. And we pray, Father, that these words would pierce our hearts so that we might rightly apply them to our lives. We pray, Father, that those are here who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, we pray, Father, that sinners would be saved and that Christians would be sanctified. We pray, Father, that you would give us understanding of this truth of how we are to be charitable in our giving to help the poor and the needy. Especially in a day that we live in today, Father, when so many are so deep in debt that they are unable to do that which you require of us. Forgive us, Father, for our selfishness, for our sinfulness in this manner, and renew within us a commitment to do that which is right. We pray, Father, that you would be with those unable to be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray especially for those who need your healing hand upon their body. Pray that you would restore their health so that they might join us soon in worship. Pray for those who would be away. Give them safety and bring them back to us safely. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who join in worshiping the living God this day, that you would meet with them in the various places in the church universal. And many would be brought into your kingdom. Bless our time together. In this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We begin a new chapter today. Matthew chapter 6 and we will read verses 1 through 4. Matthew 6 beginning with verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. We come to the fourth section of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that Jesus continues to teach about His kingdom and how Christians are to live in this world in total submission and dependence upon God. Now the phrase, God the Father, 
reoccurs throughout chapter 6, revealing to us that every single thing that you and I do, whether we're lost or saved, is in the presence of God. And one day we will have to stand before this holy God and give an account of all that we have done. Now, that just blows my mind. I don't know about you. The scripture speaks about every idle word that we have spoken that we have to give an account. In other words, there is a day that is coming that we must give an account to God. And that in itself should make us concerned. That in itself should cause us to seek to know what God's will is, and also should motivate us to do His will. Now, we know that in our Christian pilgrimage, and I'm, li- I'm glad that the ladies are doing Pilgrim's Progress in our Bible study, ladies' Bible study, and if you're not involved in that, I would encourage you to do that, because it's so good as far as the Christian life is concerned. I mean, it is a pattern of the Christian life. Just about every single thing that we experience in our life is written down in Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress. So uh, there's your advertisement for you, Miss Bunny. Now, we see that Jesus is addressing not only one's outward appearance, but also his inward heart. We know that the religious leaders of Jesus' day completely dismissed the motivation of what they did. They were only concerned about the outward display. They were only concerned about the praise of men. Now, it's easy for us to criticize them. I mean, they're big targets, as we have looked at many times as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus nails them. But at the same time, overlook our own hypocrisy. Now, if we say, well, I'm never a hypocrite, uh, you may be lying to yourself. Because when we go to the Scriptures, I think often we see that we are hypocrites. And we have to ask God to forgive us and have to ask God to help us not be like the hypocrites we see in the Bible. And in chapter 6, Jesus is speaking about the hypocrisy of the religious, religious leaders in their giving, in their praying, and in their fasting. And his words are very relevant. They were relevant then, and they're relevant today. They're relevant to you and me. And of course, that's why we have the Word of God. It is something that is relevant to us each and every day. I mean, we must not, we must not forget that we commit the same sins that they commit. There, there's not new sins that are invented every day. They're the same old sins all the way from the very beginning When Adam and Eve began to sin, man has committed the same sins. We're just as deceived as they were deceived. And one of the greatest sins we have to deal with is the sin of pride. Now last week you heard a wonderful sermon. Well, if you were here, you heard a wonderful sermon. Or if you watched it on, uh, like we did, we were over in Portugal. And of course, uh, your worship time there in Portugal was 6 o'clock. So we were able to watch the sermon there and listen to it. And it was a good sermon on pride. Pride is constantly knocking at our door. And pride wants to possess you and me, causing us to think that we're better than we really are. Constantly whispering in our ear, you deserve better. You deserve so much more in life. 
And this is, of course, what Adam and Eve were confronted with by Satan. There in Genesis chapter 3, when he said, You will not surely die. So first of all, he directly opposes what God said. For God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he confronts them with the very sin of pride. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to know all things? God's holding something back from you. And the temptation to be like their Creator was presented to them, and they jumped on it. Well, children, did they become like God? No, they did not become like God. Instead, they became like the devil himself, being evil, being wicked. They were full of sin and pride as a result of their disobedience. And Satan has not changed his tactics. He continues up to this very day and will continue to the end of this age to confront us with this same sin of pride. And we have to be aware of it. We have to be aware that Satan does not change his tactics. He continues with the same temptations that he's used ever since the beginning, causing us to think that we can be our own God, that we can rule our own life, do our own thing. And the whole time we are being deceived by Satan if we believe his lies and deceiving us in the Word of God. Taking the Word of God and twisting it to cause us to think that we're obeying it when in reality we're not. And we have to realize that Satan wants us to be filled with pride. Now, this was the situation with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And Jesus, we see, confronts them head on in this passage as well as the other passages that we have looked at. And we're faced with the same issues that they were faced with. And we must understand that Jesus' teaching is for you and me. I mean, don't leave in its, in its historical setting. Well, that was in that day and time. That's what so many people try to do today. Well, those were for those people that time. No, if it was for them, it is for us. God is not changing. He's everlasting. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And His Word is everlasting. It never changes. So therefore, Jesus is speaking His truth by His Word and His Spirit this morning. And the question is, do I have ears to hear and eyes to see it? Now I hope you have prayed already this morning, Lord, speak to me through the message. Show me my sinfulness. Open my eyes to your truth. Work in my life. Make me more like Christ. If you haven't prayed that prayer, pray it now. We need to prepare ourselves for worship. We need to prepare ourselves to hear God's Word taught and preached every Sunday morning. Sometimes we wonder, well, I didn't get much out of the sermon today. Well, could it be that you didn't pray that God would give you something so that you might get something out of it? Now, as we look at this passage, Jesus teaching on the kingdom of righteousness and speaking about our worship of God in giving and praying and fasting, 
And we see in these first four verses, Jesus is dealing with the subject of giving. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We'll deal later with the praying and the fasting. And we see again that Jesus requires more of his followers, his disciples, than the religious leaders required of theirs. Jesus insisted that Christianity is a far higher quality of holiness than man's religion. Matter of fact, man's religion doesn't have anything to do with holiness. So he warns them of the erroneous doctrine that the religious leaders of their day had taught them and cautions them against their evil practices and not to follow in their steps because they were full of hypocrisy. They were full of worldliness. So this morning I want us to hold up Jesus' standard and see what He reveals to us about our own righteousness before others in this area of charitable giving and how Jesus instructs us in this matter. Now notice there in verse 1, Jesus says, "...take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men." To be seen by others, otherwise you have no reward before your Father in heaven. We see that Jesus immediately addresses the hypocrisy of those who considered themselves righteous. Now, how they acted before others, but did not consider what God observed. Verse 1 gives us a general principle in reference to a moral and spiritual duty. Then it follows this verse with an illustration, amplified, and then reinforces it. So in the first three particular duties, we see this giving, praying, and fasting. Now, this particular verse, verse 1, in the Greek literally says, Take care not to perform your good deeds before others so as to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The English Standard Version probably gives one of the best translations. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven, who is in heaven. Now here, righteousness and good works is not speaking about that imputed righteousness that we get at conversion. No, this is the sanctification that God gives us. The righteousness that we are to be involved in as Christians, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in both to will and to do His good pleasure. So this is the righteousness, our sanctification that we are working out. A.W. Pink says in verses 2 through 4, the general principle laid down in the opening sentence is applied manward, Godward, and selfward. And the three duties specified have to do with our state, our souls, and our body. We need to understand as Christians, we are not antinomians. We believe that after conversion, God gives us the ability to obey all that He tells us in Scripture. He gives us the ability to keep His commandments, to obey His law, to love Him, and to love our fellow man. And Jesus emphasized throughout His sermon 
this desire that we should have if we're Christians to obey Him. Now, the first good work that Jesus mentions here is that of charitable giving. Now, all religions, it doesn't matter whether it's Christian religion, Hindu, Buddhism, some other religion, all require giving, does it not? Even false Christianity requires giving. And all the religious teachings on this are emphasizing that a person is to be generous. And Jesus, of course, is clearly teaching that this deals with a man's attitude as well as his motive. He reveals that the mere formal works and religious acts are worthless in sight of God. If it doesn't come from the heart, then it's worthless. He isn't downplaying charitable giving. He's condemning the act of doing charitable giving in a self-promoting way. We see this often. I mean, you can't help but drive down the highway or the street, and what do you see on buildings? Names of individuals, people who have donated money so that this hospital might be built or something else might be built. Their name is plastered everywhere. You go to a football game and you usually see it on the stadium somewhere. And therefore we see that these people have given money so that their names might be plastered everywhere and that they might receive praise. Now, what they're more or less saying is look at what I have done. Look how generous I have been. Am I not a generous person? So therefore we see that they are desiring praise from others. But again, let us not be so quick to condemn them while doing the same thing. Have you ever given to a particular cause and desired to be recognized for that? Maybe you sent money into some organization and they print out those who contributed and you're looking and you don't see your name. What do you do? Well, why isn't my name listed there? I gave. You make a phone call and say, you forgot to put my name on there. What are we doing? We're said, I want to be recognized along with everybody else whose name is written there. See, as human beings, we are prone to desire the praise of others. Again, we see how pride works in us. Pride works in us to promote self instead of giving praise to God. And the Pharisees were skilled at tooting their own horn and seeking praise from men. I mean, God had commanded Israel in the Old Testament to take care of the poor. That's what we read just a moment ago there in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And we have to understand now this being released every seven years is not applied anymore. I heard recently someone saying that, well, that's the reason why people ought to be released from their student loans. Well, that's kind of stretching Scripture. Matter of fact, it's misreading Scripture. But the same truth is also found in Leviticus 25, 35, 29, 16, 41, 1. And then also in Proverbs 14, 21, 19, 17, 21, 13, and 28, 
27. That's just a few of the Old Testament passages where it speaks about taking care of those who are needy, those who are poor. Scripture teaches that it's unchristian to ignore the poor. We're not to turn the poor over to our government. No, it's to be Christians. It's to be the church that take care of the poor. And if God's grace has been put in your heart, then you have a desire within your heart to help those who are needy, to relieve the needy, especially those who are in the household of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are times that we may need to deny even our own wants so that we might be able to comfort someone in need. And Jesus points out, that such an attitude is a righteous attitude. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 112.9, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor His righteousness. Now what's His righteousness? Well, those things that He just spoke of. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And of course, Paul uses that very same passage... In 2 Corinthians 9, 9, to promote cheerful giving to the church there at Corinth. A.W. Pink says, Those who refuse to give unto the poor are guilty of gross injustice. For inasmuch as they are but stewards over what they possess, they rob the needy of their due. So what is he saying? Everything that you have comes from who? God. And God has said, this is how you break it down in proportion. And a portion of that ought to go to the needy, the poor. Now the Greek word translated, charitable deeds, can be translated to pity, acts of kindness, alms, alms giving. See, the root word signifies to have a compassion or to display an act of mercy. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to display charitable act, practice righteousness. And it's something that we're not to have to ponder. In other words, we don't have to sit here and say, well, am I supposed to do this? No, the Scripture's clear. It's something that we are to do naturally, knowing that it pleases our Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus states that those who give for show sound a trumpet. Now, I could have arranged, and some churches probably do this, I could have arranged to have a trumpet in the very back corner, and the minute I said that, have them blow it. I would have got your attention, right? And that's what he's saying. People get the attention of others before they give. This is what was happening with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They desired praise from men as their reward. And they have their praise from men, which they so eagerly desire. And they enjoy being puffed up by those who say, What a fine man he is. What an outstanding gift he has given. And therefore, they are puffed up as a result. Matthew Henry says, 
in pride and vain glory, not in compassion to the poor, but purely for display, they might be extolled as good men, and so might gain an interest in the esteem of people with which they knew how to serve their own turn and get a great deal more than they gave. So he even goes as far as say that they twisted it to be able to receive even more than they had given. Such religious men are blind to their own pride and don't see how detestable these actions are before the living God. They are so ignorant of their self-righteousness, of their pride, that they have no true knowledge of the living God and what the living God desires of them. So therefore, God will not reward them. Now second, who are those that Christians are to seek to relieve? We're talking about the poor. Who are the needy? Who are those who are entitled to relief? Well, we're not to be ignorant on this matter. For we are to be good stewards of that which God has blessed us with. We're not to waste our money. We're not to just disperse it to anyone as our government does. We're to be wise and give as God has commanded us to give and be good stewards of the money that He's blessed us with. Now this can be very difficult in our day and time. For there are a lot of professional swindlers and we have to be wise. I can remember years ago when... Uh, We were located over there on RTS campus. I got a particular phone call one day, and the man gave me this really, I guess you'd say, sad, good story. And I went and picked him up and carried him out for breakfast, and we sat there and talked, and he gave his testimony that seemed to be a legitimate testimony, and I guess he knew we were Reformed. He even said that he was Reformed and went into all the detail how he came to know the doctrines of grace. And uh, we talked for a couple of hours there, and he shared with me, he said, but I'm trying to get a job. And I'm going for an interview, and I need, I need some nice clothes to be able to go for this interview. So I carried him over to the clothes closet at RTS, and uh, he tried on some clothes, and he just said, well, none of these clothes I think would be appropriate. And now that should have been a catch for me right there. Uh, so I had one of our deacons take the man to Dillard's and bought him some nice clothes. Well, later we found out that he took the clothes back to Dillard's and got the money. We were taken. Sad to say, he's got to stand before God one day and give an account for what he did. But we have to be wise. But if we're going to err, let us err on the side of grace, okay? But still, we must be wise. Now, those we should help are those who draw out pity. Elderly widows, handicapped, the sick, the blind, the orphan. I mean, this is the principle that we must heed. We should guard against indiscriminating giving, for such often does more harm than good. And it will encourage idleness as well as self-indulgence. Now, obviously, a healthy, strong beggar who preys on the generosity of others is not entitled to receive alms. If he's healthy... And strong, he needs to be working. Give him a job. Also, years ago, 
when I was associate pastor and we'd have men come to our church wanting money, I said, well, let me find you some work to do around here at the church. And I'd put them to work. i never forget one man, one day I put him to work outside doing some stuff and I went looking for him later and I couldn't find him anywhere. Well, I walked into our um, lobby that we had and there he was on the couch sound asleep. So I walked over and I crept up on him and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and he jumped up. He said, oh, I got tired. I said, well, if you get tired, come see me first before you go and take a nap. And he finally uh, left. He didn't uh, receive any money as a result of his sleeping. But he was strong and he was able to work. And we should put people to work that say they need uh, help and let them earn the money. I mean, we live in a day when many want a free handout. And one of the reasons is because of our government. We know that. Our government is guilty of giving free handouts. They go directly against what the Word of God teaches. They believe, people, many people believe that they are owed such. That they're entitled to receive on. But that's not what the Scripture teaches us. I mean, this mentality is literally destroying our nation. It's bankrupting our nation. Our nation is so in debt to China that we ought to all start learning to speak Chinese. I mean, it's fearful. I make a joke of it, but it's fearful how in debt we are to China. I mean, this nation right now owes over $30 trillion in federal debt. I mean, if you take our national population of uh, 33, I mean, 333 million people and you divide that debt up, that means every single individual owes around $90,000. So if you have a family of six, your family owes the federal government $540,000. Personally, I believe we are in for some difficult days in the future. And forgiving student loans isn't going to help our debt. Now, I don't agree with how these student loans were set up. I don't agree with the amount of interest that they're having to pay on that. But at the same time, I don't agree that our nation ought to take the debt on that students willingly took out so that they could go to school. We must be wise. We must be wise in all areas of personal finance. So that we, when these difficult days come, so that we are able to help those out that are in need. That's when we as Christians can come alongside of those in need and help them out when they really are desperate for food and clothing. If we're not prepared, who's going to help them? Our government? Our government's not going to be able to help them because it's so deep in debt. So therefore, let us be wise in this area of finances. Third, we must realize that even a good deed may be done in a sinful way. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
Now, that's not talking only about the lost person. Now, a lost person can't do anything about it. But even a Christian has a heart that is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. We must deal with our heart. We must understand that our heart has to be right in this area of benevolence so that we might do that which is pleasing to God. Now this is why Jesus says there in verse 1, take heed. Inferring that we are in danger of stumbling at this very point. Acts of charity are especially encouraged. And they are something that is blessed by God. When we do it in a manner that's pleasing by God. Now, such pride as what the Pharisee had, had to be put to death. We want people to think that we're more spiritual than we are, right? And we would like people to think that we're really more generous than we really are. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 of Acts? I mean, they wanted everybody to think that they had given all to the church as they had sold the piece of land. And of course, both of them ended up being carried out of the church to their grave. And Jesus warns His disciples of secret pride in the heart. I mean, such pride is twofold, of the mind and the will. Pride of the mind is a corrupt disposition. Man thinks more highly of himself then he should. We see that in the parable that Jesus tells there in Luke chapter 18 of the publican and the Pharisee. And as the Pharisee stood, and what does he say? God, I thank you that I'm not like this sorry old rascal over here. Well, at the end of that parable, what? This sorry old rascal over here went home justified, not the Pharisee. See, pride has caused so many to enter into an everlasting hell because they've been deceived in thinking that they are saved in fact when they are dead in their trespasses and sin. And they even think that they are more generous than anybody else. Pride of the will is an inward affection which makes a man bitter with his position in life. Thinking that he deserves so much better than what he's experiencing in his life. Now, this was the sin, as I've already mentioned, of Adam and Eve. They were filled with pride because of their desire to be like God. And pride causes all men to love the praise of men. I mean, it isn't only a few, but it's found in all men. It might be just a small bit, or it might be a great bit, but it's found in every single human being. And this pride, if it's not mortified, it will grow stronger and cause us to commit greater sins. I mean, we will end up like Pharaoh, who asks, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? Or we may end up like Absalom, who sought to dethrone his own father David from the throne. Or like Ananias and Sapphira. Or even worse, pride may cause us to fall 
like Satan. And now he seeks to destroy all Christians. So let us hear the warning of Jesus. Let us hear those words, take heed. We must take every precaution. We must guard against this great sin. But you may ask, how? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to tell you how. Well, first, by examining, examination, self-examination. Knowing that pride is in our heart, we should make sure that we do not allow pride to deceive us. But we ask God to expose it. God, show me the areas in my life where I'm prideful. Give me strength to mortify this sin of pride in my life. Because, Lord, I want to be humbled like my Savior. Second, sincere self-condemnation. 1 Corinthians 11.31. We'll use it this morning as we come to the Lord's table. If we would judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. I mean, we must humble ourselves before God and hate ourselves for our wicked pride and confess it, repent of it, be cleansed of it. Third, remember God's judgment on this very sin. Acts 12, 23, remember the death of Herod? Because he took to himself the glory of God. What do we say there? God doesn't take that lightly. God does not take it lightly when we seek to take his glory away from him and put it on ourselves. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then fourth, by meditating upon Christ's suffering in Gethsemane and Golgotha. Nothing will more effectually humble us and humble a proud heart than realizing that our sin of pride is what put Christ on the cross and that it must be crucified. So we are to minister. We are to minister to the needy, desiring to obey Scripture, desiring to please our Heavenly Father, longing to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, in this spiritual act and acceptable unto the Lord and not be a hypocrite. Now this word hypocrite, I've used it quite a bit. And children, I want you to understand it. A hypocrite is someone who is an actor. Someone who wears a mask. You know, when um, October the 31st comes, what do we do? You dress up like one of the reformers or one of the biblical characters. What are you doing? You're acting like that character. So that's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is someone who is acting, putting on a mask. And that's what Jesus is constantly condemning these Pharisees for doing. These Pharisees acted as though they were the most devout worshipers of God. And that they also loved their fellow man. But Jesus exposes them, exposes that in reality they were self-righteous. 
And they desired only the applause of men. And behind their outward appearance of piety and generosity, they were filled with pride and worldliness. They performed their worldly deeds by strutting everybody. They would come right down that aisle. They would come right up here to the offering plate, fan their money, and throw it into the offering plate so everybody would know that they had given their money. Showing, blowing their trumpet, as Jesus says there. So we must understand that this sin is far more evil than we often think. Far more prevalent than we often think. For it seeks, now now listen to this, for it seeks to make man, rather than God, the judge and the approver of our action. Did you hear what I said? It seeks to make man, rather than God, the judge and the approver of our actions. How often do we think we have done something or thought something good because men applause. Oh, we must have done it really good. They're applauding me. So we're letting the man dictate to what we think is really good instead of God dictating to us what is right and good. But to put it another way, how often have we stopped doing something because it incurred the displeasure of others. Instead of being more concerned about what God thinks. How many times have you done that? Simply because someone else criticizes what you were doing, and what you were doing is right, you stopped doing it. Why? Because they criticized it. Instead of thinking, did God think that was right? Does this not reveal that our hearts have more regard for men than for God? Are we more afraid of offending our fellow man than we are offending a holy, holy, holy God? Now as verse 3 reveals, our giving must be done in a manner that pleases God, not man. For God sees and God knows your heart and my heart. His precepts are designed to restrain the sin of pride. And we are to give with the sole intent and desire of pleasing God only. Not man. And when we do a good work, then... We should dismiss it from our mind. Did you hear what I said? When we do a good work, we should dismiss it from our mind and move on to the next good work. Not allow Satan again to puff us up and say, oh boy, you did a good work. You need to meditate on that good work you did for a while. Continue to think about how good you are. You're so much better than those other Christians. Those are the thoughts he'll put in your mind. No, we should dismiss it and move forward to continuing to please God in all that we do. Dismiss it from our mind. In verse 4, Jesus says, be in secret. Now, this is not to be taken literally and absolute. For an act of mercy 
is going to be seen by others at some time or another. What it means is that we are to do it discreetly. In other words, don't make a big deal out of it. I mean, just like your offering. Don't make a big deal out of it. But people are going to know about it because we got men in the back, back there that count it. So they're going to see it. So you can't hide it from them, what you give. So you're to do it in a discreet way. For instance, let me give you an example. Right now, the city of Jackson is dealing with a water problem, right? How do we respond to that? Well, if we know someone that is in need, we check on them and we help them. We do it discreetly. We don't have to tell everybody else. We don't have to call everybody else. and Hey, let's get together. Let's get a lot of water together. Let's go over again. No, you just do it. You do it discreetly. I'm going to help this person. I know this person lives in Jackson, so therefore I'm going to reach out to them and I'm going to help them. And no one knows it except you and that person that you do it for. You're doing it very discreetly. That's how we're to do it. See, our chief aim must be to bring praise to God. Your heavenly Father sees in secret, will Himself reward you openly. So the only person you're really concerned about is who? Or the only being is God. You're concerned about God pleasing Him. And even if all that we do is defiled by sin, God doesn't forget our good works nor our labor of love. And there is a coming day, as I've already mentioned, there's a coming day when He will reward His children for their good works. He will make all things known, as 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 4 5 says. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart then each one's praise will come from God. So we see there is that day coming. Matthew Henry says, It is true, our own deeds do not deserve heaven. In other words, you're not going to earn heaven. We're not talking about our works that earn us something. No, these are works as a result of salvation. But it is as true that we cannot go to heaven without them. Did you hear that? In other words, they don't earn you to heaven, but you can't go to heaven without them. In other words, if you don't do them, it proves what? That your heart hasn't been changed. If your heart's been changed, you're naturally going to do them, and it shows that you are going to heaven. It is pure religion, James 1, 27, and will be the test on that great day. Christ here takes it for granted that His disciples give alms. He takes it for granted. Nor will He own those who do not. In other words, those who do not, they're not His. Those who do are His. Augustine, if you read in your order of worship, you saw this phrase. The praise of others need not even be sought by one who acts righteously. In other words, if you're really acting righteously, you could care less about the praise of others. The thing that satisfies you is what? Your Heavenly Father. If you know that your Heavenly Father is pleased, you don't care whether anybody else is pleased or not, right? That's who you want to please, your Heavenly Father. Do you give to be seen? But if you do it, you cannot hide it. 
You don't give to experience a good feeling. Now, it may bring a good feeling, but that's not the reason why you give. Oh, that felt so good. No, that's not the reason why you give. You give to be obedient. You give because you've been born again. Now, some will say those people, if we do it right, those people at Grace Baptist Church are always caring for one another. They're caring for others. They're seeking to help those in need. That's what we want people to say, right? That's what we want people to see, that we're doing it for our Heavenly Father who is in heaven, seeking to please and honor Him in all that we do. Why? Because that is a mark of a Christian. That is a mark of being born again. That is a mark of loving to do the will of God. And God has poured out His Spirit to bring about this new birth, to change our life. To cause our life to focus on doing God's will as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's only by grace are we able to fulfill what Jesus teaches here. It's only by having a changed heart. A changed heart which is a giving heart. A person who has experienced God's grace is going to be a gracious person. Did you hear what I said? A person that has experienced God's grace is going to be a gracious person. If a person is not a gracious person, then I would question whether they experienced God's grace or not. I mean, how in the world can we not be gracious when God has been so gracious to us? So therefore, let us examine our heart to see if grace has affected us in such a way. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is able to change our hearts from being prideful, stingy, to a heart that is submissive and loves to obey your will and loves to be generous. How we pray, Father, that if there's those here this morning that have not experienced that change of heart, that today would be the day when they would experience God's grace and that they would be changed, born again from above so that they might love God, and that they might love their fellow man. Loving Him to the point of being willing to be generous toward Him. To show Him benevolence. To give charitable gifts. Expose our hearts to us, Father. Help us to understand these truths that we've looked at this morning so that they might be a part of our life, so that we might live before other men, so that our light shines, so that we are salt in this world, so that we bring glory to our Heavenly Father. May Your Spirit do the work that only He can, in our lives. And now, Father, as we come to the table, 
to remember what Christ has accomplished for us, how gracious and how merciful He has been in taking our sins upon Himself and giving us the righteousness that He earned. We stand amazed. And we thank You that we can come to the table, Father, and and remember, as He has commanded us to, remember this great work of salvation, both His active and passive obedience. And Father, be able to come knowing that our sins have been forgiven and reminded of who He is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. Search our hearts, Father. Prepare us to come together and to commune at the table together in this wonderful time of worship. Search our hearts as we pray silently in these moments.